Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. You know, there's a lot of featureings to mention here, Graham Goodwin. We feature an all-listener Q&A format. We cover and love us some European sports cars, American sports cars, Asian. I mean, there's no boundaries to our love here for sports cars. In particular, though, we love us some daily sports car and a certain (laughs) British chap who staring 15 minutes out from midnight right now is still committed to doing the show after my week and especially my day here Friday went very sideways scheduling wise how are you my friend and you're certainly going to get a pass if we hear you snoring halfway through the episode oh no no we're, we're in good shape it's uh, it's been a busy day I'm joining you from uh, Delhi Sportscast's favorite hotel uh, just outside uh, Monza in Italy uh, for the European Le Mans series uh, here in Italy. Uh, we've just had the uh, the calendar published for next season. I'm sure we get on to that with questions. Uh, but um, it's been a very busy day. There is a lot going on. And significantly, by the way, I was told this afternoon, something that passed me by, this is the 100th race meeting organized by LMEM. Uh, obviously, that's the organization that also runs the WEC. And I hope, and with relevance to some of the questions that are coming up, we can bring you, over the weekend even, um, a special uh, Inside the Sports Car Paddock uh, featuring none other than the soon-to-be ex-CEO of LMEM, Gerard Deveau, who's agreed to have a chat with me tomorrow about a range of emerging issues and indeed talk a bit, little bit about his departure after well, the better part of a decade at the helm wow all good stuff gonna say as always graham thank you to our mighty fine supporters at the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com bell racing helmets usa and cooper tires you always select the categories where we start when we start and so on before you do that, though, I want to throw in one question. It fits zero categories. Uh, this is from our pal Eric Harkrader, who says, because he listens to all of the podcast content each week, he says, so, like, nine hours, this might cost my job. I really want an update on the proposed Rocky and Rosie show, along with at Ooh. DSC Husky. When do we get this valuable content? So, first-time listeners, you're probably saying, what in the hell is this? Well, Graham, in the beautiful new addition to his house, Glorious Husky, he's created a Twitter handle for, or we should say we believe the dog created his own, at DSC Husky social media account. And yeah, uh, we've been... Dog, dog, undersc- at dog underscore DSC. Okay. I well, well, I was going by what Eric wrote, but you know, uh, or we could go with that. <laughs> and uh, we've had questions when, if and when, my cats, uh, my wife and our cats, Rocky and Rosie, might get their own account, and I'm still very much on the fence about that. So um, I don't know, but it is certainly going to be something that if it happens, uh, I'm just going to signal for help because it's clearly going to be needed. Um, that very important stuff uh, aside, and thank you, Eric, for sending that in. Where do we go first? Graham Goodwin. Should we, uh, on the basis that there's a lot to talk about, um, go with Weck Elsom's Wilms and Laco? Yes. ACO Rules Racing. WEC, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, and ACO based fun. Graham, we're kicking off with our pal Nikolai B. 
says, do you know why the LMEM is wanting to change LMP2 driver regulations? And have I understood it right that the move came as a surprise for those involved? It seems like odd timing with WEC or LMEM head Gerard Nouveau departing at the end of the year. This is the big hot-button topic of the day, Graham. Why don't you uh, read us into it and break it down? Right. Well, we wrote about this um, for Racer and uh, for Delhi Sports Car a week ago. And this comes down to it's a proposal that appears to have come from a small group of teams and or their drivers um, represent the interests of bronze drivers in the FIWC. So to put that into context, we're now in race 65 or so of the WC's history of those races. One in LMP2 has been won by a team featuring a bronze driver, that being Fritz van Aert, the racing team Netherlands team, uh, at Fuji last year. So there's a perceived and actual um, disparity in terms of the competitiveness of teams in P2 featuring a bronze. The proposal appears to have been that there should be a mandatory bronze initially, a mandatory bronze for the WEC, later slightly mellowed to be a proposal that either a, either a mandatory bronze or two mandatory silvers. Uh, that has not gone down well uh, uh, very much further than the initial lobbying group for reasons which I cannot tonight explain, but I'm promised an explanation uh, as to what's going to happen. It appears that that proposal has gone through several stages, including the FIA Insurance Commission. It has gone to and been approved by, it looks like, the FIA World Motorsports Council, which basically, if it doesn't put it in stone that it should be in the regulations for the WEC next season, effectively it becomes a very formal proposal that that will be the new regs for the WEC. Problem is, uh, further than uh, that, that of course that is not the majority of LMP2 teams across the ACO family. Forgetting for a moment IMSA, just the ACO family, there are 15 full season LMP2 cars in LMS, and I can tell you, I can't find a single one of those teams that agrees with this rule. Um, LMEM were then put into a position where this having been put out in the public, into the public domain, uh, a rapid fire process of consultation rather belatedly i might add uh, came forward with the lms teams offering them three options so there you are adopt the regulations that the fia have considered or stay as you are but introduce a subclass lmp2 am for a mandatory bronze frankly it is that third one uh, that would be much the favoured option for the vast majority of teams that I've spoken to. And by the way, that's the vast majority of teams that are currently LMP2 in uh, the LMS paddock. And by the way, also a number of teams that I know are considering or actively planning to step up for next season. I'll say this much. This is an unholy mess. It has annoyed a lot of people. Spent much of my late evening on the phone to teams, to drivers, and latterly to some of the rule makers, the administrators. I am promised answers in the next 24 hours. The reason you won't be reading about this um, you know, in the next few hours on Daily Sports Car is because I yet to find out with clarity exactly what they intend to do with the rules. That is not... Um, a hit on anybody that's written 
what has happened today, the FI World Motorsport Council. Those stories are accurate insofar as that is what has been discussed and agreed. Are they yet the regulations? No, they're not. What I need to be sure of is exactly what the process is moving forward. But right now, all is not very happy in the House of LMP2. And it appears that that's because a rule set that very few people wanted has been sent all the way down the line is now enshrined as an FIA uh, agreed a position for regulations, whilst the vast majority of the teams directly affected and their businesses fundamentally disagree with it. Uh, it is a bit of a hashtag watch this space moment, but I would guess that by the time we get to this kind of time tomorrow evening, things should be an awful lot clearer. There's going to be a lot of shouting done, I'm afraid, tomorrow uh, when we get back to the Autodrama di Monza. Shouting. At Monza. Never heard of such a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to Tigera380, who asks, there's a number of current LMP2 teams eyeing LMDH programs with manufacturers. Is it realistic that LMP2 teams will be able to run these programs with no proper engineering or car development background? I would maybe throw in the question uh, of the question, are there a lot of LMP2 teams looking at LMDH? That would be... I'm not saying there are none. I'm just saying I wouldn't say a significant number, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a few. I mean, if we, if we were to look at the kind of teams that I suspect that uh, together at 380 is talking about, United Auto Sports, Jota Sports, certainly uh, looking in that direction. TDS Racing would certainly be looking in that direction. There are a number of the, the better-funded organizations, Signatech, yet another. So once you start stripping out uh, the kind of multi-car teams – probably about half the the major players in LMP2 in Europe would be looking for either the possibility of a, it being adopted as a kind of factory-blessed program or potentially attracting the kind of funding that might be running a customer car in the future. Hearing some significant stuff uh, here and in the days leading up to Monza about the future of the LMDH and hypercar joint class in WEC, and beyond that, of course, in IMSA. Um, hearing that we might be hearing some positive and surprising news pretty soon. And I think, MP, if I close it like this, number one, yes, I do believe there are teams with that level of capability. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the level of engineering uh, ability in the, some of the teams I've just mentioned is at the very highest level. And frankly, what they've not got, they can very easily buy in to bolt onto what they've already got. Uh, A huge amount of knowledge uh, available, huge amount of know-how. And yes, most of these teams are equipped to take that next half a step up, the kind of pilot of hope, if you like. But uh, I think what we're talking about here is next steps are not that far away. Uh, When asked a question by me yesterday, a very well-placed source told me that they expect there to be at least one declaration from a a manufacturer that probably we're not expecting before the potential that we could 
might, might not hear from Porsche at the end of this year. So that is not that far away. Um, and the fact that we're being sort of teased that something's out there that few people currently know about outside the teams working um, on those programs. There's a lot going on. I'd like to say that the majority of it at the moment feels positive. I think we can expect that some of the manufacturers involved in those talks, MP, they, those talks will not mature with every manufacturer to a program. But I think we've got every reason to to hope and feel that a significant number of them will. Next question is when? And the answer to that question at the moment seems to be in the case of one, maybe two programs really very soon indeed. The only caveat here, and, and I don't mean to dismiss Tiger's question. Uh, it's a great question. Just the question of the question and the reason that I phrase it that way. It's not a hard thing for a bunch of WEC LMP2 teams or LMS LMP2 teams to say, hey, we're very interested in looking into running an LMDH P2-based. You know, we're in P2. This will be a P2-based thing. That makes sense. I get that part. What I don't know if folks fully grasp is the costs involved. And I can tell you, and this is the part where, again, LMP2 makes so much sense. Uh, if you have a gentle man, gentle woman driver in there, it certainly uh, definitely eases the budget. I know that on the European side, especially WEC, uh, WEC in particular, you can have some pretty amazing names driving those cars, uh, whereas more LMS, uh, IMSA LMP2, there's certainly a, a much stronger uh, pro-am tenant to it. But I don't know if the WEC P2 teams in particular realize the really significant cost increase just with current DPI. And we know that with what LMDH is meant to be that coming into the hybrid world and the cost there. I mean, right now, uh, before we move on to the next question, uh, I know that for serious title contending customer based customer style dpi budgets we're talking you could run an indie car for a full 17 race season on what it costs to run a single dpi in a imsa season we're talking high four million mid five and a half million and again i'm not talking factory the factory numbers are far higher but just compare that to what an lmp2 budget is for a season mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where I just hope that uh, our friends in WEC LMP2 and ELMS LMP2 realize LMDH sounds awesome. Oh, I hope you can find money because you're going to need a lot of it if you want to come play there. Uh, let's go to... Yeah, I mean, sorry, yeah. if you want to follow up there, that's brother. That's okay. No problem. No, uh, that's fine. You go for it. Let's go to Daniel Summers Gill. Graham, what is your opinion on the entry list for Bahrain? He says it looks so sad with only L- two LMP1s on it. Can the two Toyotas be allowed to go out uh, to go at it with no success? Handicap, maybe, uh, since there's no other competitors. Uh, he says, hashtag me personally. Probably not due to it being an FIA championship, but it would be fun to see them go balls out one last time. Uh, hi, Daniel. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. Uh, I think the first thing to say is 
The saddest thing is this is the way that LMP1 will bow out with just the two cars on there. Certainly, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to have success handicap on those cars. I think they should allow them to run uh, at their capabilities. Do I mean turning it up to the max? Well, maybe not. You know, maybe, you know, um, you'd want to basically keep the, uh, the the cars within the range of their capabilities over eight hours, because remember, it's an eight-hour race in Bahrain. But share the sadness that we're just going to see the two. Share the sadness. It's the last time we're going to see them. Yeah. Um, and absolutely agree that they should be allowed to run free. Um, as for the overall numbers on the list, 25 cars, I think we can be thankful that we've got 25 cars after the hell that the uh, you know that the planet and our industry and our sport has gone through. I think it's really quite remarkable that the teams, and for that matter, the manufacturers, have sustained the attack that we've had um, to get back to racing and to maintain grids as best they possibly can. Um, through to the end of what's been a very, very long season uh, for the FIWC. So whilst 25 cars, it's a disappointing total, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. I mean, there was not that long ago when, you know, the rumours were circulating that a quite large number of the teams that you will see at Bahrain uh, would not make it. So I think it's time for a bit of a vote of thanks to all of those that have been able to sustain the the grids that we have managed in all of the major championships that means your side of the pond as well it's been tough there too and we have seen impacts on uh, on grids across the world uh, let's celebrate the end of what's been a hellish year and hope that we're going to get to uh, better times ahead knowing the teams and the WEC they're all going to be going down fighting I think there's going to be a hell of a, a battle in every class there are still i think it's five titles to be decided in the wec and you know we'll have a few new names to um to play with out there good to see by the way confirmed today richard westbrook will be joining paul delana's uh, squad uh, as they try to get their unbelievably their first win of the season title out of the grasp of the big canadian but he'll want to go out uh, on a uh, uh, you know on a, on a bit of a high uh, this time, and the, the addition of Westy uh, with uh, uh, Augusto Farfus being busy, your side of the pond at uh, the Charlotte Roval this this coming. Actually, sorry, it's not that one, is it? It's going to be um, Sebring that weekend. Yeah. So he's at Sebring, as is their nominated reserve Darren Turner, who I think is going to be driving with Art of Racing in their GTT Vantage. Um, I just hope we get some good racing. I think we could do with a bit of that at the end of a year, which we'll see. You know, the end of the era for LMP1. It'll see the end of uh, Gerard Laveau's reign with LMEM as well. And some more friends from the LMEM family will be leaving us at the end of that race uh, too. So, yeah, good racing, I hope. Share your disappointment, it's not 30. Particularly share your disappointment, it's just the two cars. And I hope there's a sensible decision made that we can see those Toyota's running at proper pace to get a bit of a head-to-head battle at least for part of that race before the inevitable team orders bring the shutters down on that era. We are going to go to our pal Stephen Gate, and then the remainder of the questions, those are going to be a pick 'em. You're going to pick and okay. choose how many more we want to take from there. 
Steven says, any further rumors as to Peugeot's future driver lineup? He says, I see Romain Groschon said he would consider a WEC future, so he's a contender. Says, hashtag me personally. I think we'll see Jean-Eric Verne and uh, Antonio Felix da Costa due to the current uh, Formula E link with Peugeot. And who knows, maybe Lopez could join from Toyota as he's a previous uh, Citroen driver. Also thrown there that in a podcast last week, maybe, um, mm. or the week before, with a certain French ride by the name of Sebastien Bourdais. He has also acknowledged that uh, conversations have taken place with uh, his former LMP1 partners. And they're going to want, I think, they're certainly going to want drivers with some real experience. I think there's a good number of uh, names offered in that question. By the way, I'm not sure if I said this last week. I'm going to say it right now. We had another listen to the Persia podcast uh, on the way down here. Uh, what an excellent piece of podcasting that was with the, the, that trio. Absolutely stunning stuff. Um, and heartily recommended if you've not listened to uh, MP's part one podcast with the Peugeot 908 uh, drivers. It's Pedro Lamy, Sebastian Bourdais, and, and Davidson, wasn't it, part one? Yep. Um, heartily recommend just under an hour of absolutely fantastic storytelling. Um, any other names of the frame? There were a lot of meetings going on uh, in uh, Le Mans. Um, there were a number of people linked, for instance, with the Cedetic um, Alpine. Uh, program uh, that were unhappy uh, to have been reported that they were nailed in uh, because that was not the case. I think it would be uh, remiss of me to uh, give specifics in terms of some of those names, but just take a look at the names and some of the performances that have been coming out, for instance, from the Rebellion program. And it wouldn't take a genius to realize uh, some of those names would have been um, up for the, uh, the the conversations that were going forward with Peugeot. I don't think we're going to hear those names terribly quickly, but I don't think it will be that long. We have to wait because at some point, people could have to be named as being part of their test and development teams. And I think you're going to find some very familiar names indeed there. Um, as for the names you've mentioned there, I'd love to see Antonio Felix da Costa as part of that. I think he's been absolutely stellar in just about everything he's driven over the last year or two. really is a driver coming into his own right there. Uh, Jean-Rick Verne, um, he's a strange one. Jean-Rick, capable of blinding speed. I do wonder whether or not he's perhaps a little past his peak at this point. Roman Grosjean? <sighs> nah. Sorry, can't get excited about him. Um, too many mistakes too flaky he's done endurance racing before he was okay but uh, not an absolute standout um, if they decide they need a Formula 1 star maybe but uh, I have to say he wouldn't be in my top 3, 6, 10 or rather more than 10 I think there's a lot more worthy contenders and some very very quick emerging talents would also throw in, obviously, there's the uh, IMSA Charlotte Roval event this weekend. Mm -hmm. We know that we have the Porsche GT team in the uh, final stages of its factory IMSA program. There are some very talented 
people driving those vehicles who've been very successful at Le Mans in the top category. We don't know if all of those drivers will be remaining in Porsche's employ at the end of the year. So there's even some that uh, might be coming a little bit out of left field that could be on uh, Peugeot's radar. So lots. I mean, this is fun. There's a real sports car silly season going on. Uh, where let's see. Daniel Summersgill says the end of the year draws near yet. There has, there's yet to be an official driver announcement from LMH teams for next year. Any news? He says, piggybacking what I just mentioned, several former Ford BMW and factory drivers still needing work. Uh, I know that the question well, just now is specific to let's Peugeot. Chuck, let's, chuck, let's chuck into the mix here. Yeah. No, but I mean, chuck into the mix here, for instance, you mentioned Porsche. And look, we don't know what the situation is going to be with contracted drivers there. But just look at the capabilities. I'll pick one out, not at random, because it's a good example. Look at what happened at Le Mans with the late call-up of a man that has never raced a prototype, has tested a prototype, but never raced a prototype till being called up literally, I think, qualifying day and didn't get to drive the car Am I right until the warm-up? Patrick Pele. Yeah. Um, and he was a standout talent in that. And with you know, with more, more time and without having to be quite as conservative with the car, that goes to show, doesn't it, just exactly what these guys can do. GT races they may be. Look at what look at for instance Mark Lieb um stepped in after testing well against all of his um factory compatriots and ended up with being a WC world champion and the mom winner in LMP1. So uh, the smart money is on these teams spreading their kind of uh, uh, their net pretty widely because there is talent in abundance here and it's not just those capable of, you know, individual laps of blinding speed that are going to draw the attention. It's going to be people that can produce that consistency over very long stints. And remember, what are going to be very new cars? These are not going to be cars that, certainly in the first three, six months, um, which, by the way, remember, would encompass the first Le Mans that they, uh, they drive in. Uh, these guys are going to have to produce consistency, but also... Um, drive within the constraints placed on them with what will be cars not at the top of their development curve. 10-4. And looking now at the, uh, call it the overtime or the extra questions for Weck Aslam hmm. Elms ACO, uh, I see that the vast majority of those were misplaced IMSA uh, questions, so we actually don't have uh, a ton left to throw at you here uh rob horn says say five to ten years from now and there are 10 cars from lmh 10 from lmdh would the aco ever run the 24 hours of Le Mans with just those prototypes and possibly skip lmp2 it's something that's been it's something that's been talked about not skipping lmp2 necessarily um, but would there ever be a case where you could get to a full prototype grid again, as you did in Group C days at Le Mans? That's just in theory, yes, you could. I think that's going to depend on just exactly where the strength and the mix is, particularly for the World Endurance Championship by the time you get to that point. It does seem to me that it's a very strong GT um, grid still. 
We had 22 GTM cars, for instance, um, at Le Mans this year. Those teams, those drivers are not going to go away. They're going to want to find some way of exercising their passion. And the reality is that if um, you're going to get uh, numbers of drivers at that kind of level that want to do so, there will be a racing organization very willing to take their money from them to do exactly that. So the commercial reality series, what's the maximum we might expect from something like LMDH? We've said, haven't we? There's a dozen or so factories in the room. We also know that not all of those factories will end up doing it. We also know that some of those factories quite possibly won't want to come to Le Mans. It won't necessarily be uh, in their um, uh, on their wish list to do that. Let's say you did get to 20 top-class cars. That's still only a third of the grid for the Le Mans 24 hours. Um, I don't think we will get to the stage where uh, it'll be a full prototype grid. I think we could get to the stage if things go well, if the economy recovers, and if you know uh, boards can be persuaded to invest in motorsport to the more modest degree that the new rules require than perhaps previously, that we could have a very strong top class indeed. But uh, I hope we've still got a strong contingent of GTs in some way, shape, or form. There we go. Let's see. I think we have one more for you, and that would be Jonathan Wesley. And this is a a well-spotted question. Mentions watched some of uh, the 24-hour Le Mans later portions of it. Uh, Watched that back again this week, and the magnitude of EDEX Sports achievement LMP2 really hit home. As I can recall, individual cars coming back from big practice mm. or qualifying incidents start the race, but never a whole two-car team that then fin- uh, raced and finished so well. Can either of you bring to mind a similar incident uh, or instance at a major race meeting, whether it's Rolex, Nürburgring, Spa, etc., even the Indy 500? So on that two-car angle, uh, does anything come to mind? Not immediately. Just add, by the way, the cartoon anvil for uh, Edexport hit again this weekend with Paul Chatan testing positive for COVID-19. So we're going to see Nick Manassian back at the wheel uh, of the car here this weekend, the 28 car. They've had a horrible season's defence to their ELMS championship last year. So they're defending champions to uh, non-finishes in the LMS, to seventh places. Um, from you know uh, coming on the back of a season where they, if not dominating, certainly were season-long contenders. But you're right that the way in which they bounced back from utter disaster, and it all happened in 20 minutes, didn't it? And that, by the way, is also at a cost in IMSA because the second of those EDEC cars um, going in the wall was Dwight Merriman, fractured a vertebrae, and that yeah. has led to... Era Motorsports uh, pausing their program for the remainder of this year, MP, and they'll be coming back next year, they tell us. But uh, that was a hell of a 20 minutes. Trying to, think, trying to think of another team that had luck that bad. And I'm struggling, you know. Yeah, for a single team with two cars, I, I will have to look back at my notes. Not the same team, but similar... I'll give you one on a single car team. The the one that occurs to me with a single car team was 2006 at Le Mans. And after a season where all sorts of woes befell this team, huge issues, 
particularly with engines. I can't remember immediately the figure that was given about the number of engines that failed for this team. It was Team LNT with the Panos Esperanti. And they came out and they won them on. They took the uh, GT title um, from you know, numerous uh, Porsche some factory supported teams as well in the Porsche effectively the GT2 class back then but uh, Team LNT with a highly underrated effort and after massive mechanical woes throughout the season somehow uh, pulled a Le Mans win out of the back pocket I know uh, Petit Le Mans in 2015 in the GT Le Mans class not the same uh, team, but I believe we had one of the factory Porsche 911 RSRs needing to be uh, needing a tub replacement, and also the uh, Falcon Tire GTLM team mm-hmm. uh, needing a new tub as well to go into the race. So, while not the same team, there are only three of those. No, I think there were four of those porkers, three or four porkers in the race, and uh, half of them needed to be retub before we started. So. Um, let's see. Well, you decide where we go next, Mr. Goodwin. Well, let's go to him, sir, because obviously it's a racing weekend stateside as well. I'm sure there's things that are coming up there. So I'm going to start serving these up, up for you. And there were a number of story strands through the week. One of the saddest for me personally, I'm sure for you, hashtag me personally. Oh, was that a real one or did that, was that? Hashtag you me. Was that unintentional (laughs) or was that intentional? It was unintentional. I am slightly Holy cow, uh, two weeks in a row. Good win. I know. It's it's, uh, the story about the departure. Um, Unexpected in terms of its timing of Joe Barbosa uh, from Mustang Sampling Racing after how many years? Um, as part of that multi-championship and multi-race winning effort. And questions from both Ryan Terpstra and Chris Ward uh, asking what's going on with him being released from the JDC Miller squad that now runs that effort, used to be, of course, with Action Express. Um, What can we say here, MP? So, as some of you all, uh, probably many of you all, are aware terms of what's been going on on the home front with my wife and I in terms of challenges that we've faced. Uh, There's some things we've been open with and there are some things we absolutely have not. And I would just extend that request for understanding as our cat Rosie jumps over my shoulder and walks behind the microphone. I would extend that same request with the truly delightful person that is Joao Barbosa and his family. Um, There have been some uh, health challenges that haven't been completely secret um, in the not too distant past. And we'll just say that uh, Joao has been dealing with uh, what a lot of us are dealing with, which is challenges on the home front and trying to also be an effective person in his full-time job. And as I would say most of you can attest to and uh, can say I have verified dozens and dozens of times over the last year plus, there are times where a person going uh, through those things or trying to deal with those things is not always at their sharpest, not always at their finest. And 
just say that with Joao, uh, certainly some ongoing troubles, issues to resolve at home, I would politely ask all of you to not hit him up on social media. Hey, what's going on at home? Um, and then you also have separate or independent of that. The fact that he's 45 ish has been doing this for what? The first time I met him was 1995, four, I believe 94, 95, um, at a, I think the season finale of the formula Atlantic championship, uh, in the U S here when he was searching for a ride and I was doing my best to get our team owner to seriously consider him as a replacement for our driver who was moving up to Indy lights and just thought the world of the, of the guy then having just met him, but followed his career, thought the world of him then in terms of talent and also being a high character guy. And then just loved watching him. Although his open wheel career didn't go where it should have Graham, uh, loved watching him find new home and sports cars and just do really awesome and amazing things. Uh, they are both uh, in Europe and here in the States. And I would just say, as you might have heard me mention a few times over the last couple of years on the show, if and when we get onto this topic, haven't seen that all-conquering, if you see Joao's helmet in your mirror, be afraid type guy for a little while. And that's not speaking negatively or ill of him. Just every driver reaches a point in their extended career where they are less effective than they once were. How would you, or what things would you attribute that to? I can't honestly say. It's been evident to me for a couple of years now that the tack sharp, go for pole, chase everyone down, win the race, dominate type Joao Barbosa haven't seen him that often, but would also say that knowing that he's had things on the home front to look after, that would certainly be distracting items, Graham. I don't know how you could. Uh, if he was single <laughs> and didn't have a family of his own and just was 45 years old and racing prototypes, I'm guessing uh, we might have an extra tenth or two on the old stopwatch. But this year's been yeah. tough, and that's the thing that, you know, we, we're not going to lie to you on the show. There might be some things we don't share. There's, there are some elements to that here in this response, but you can also say that if you were to go back and look, maybe you've spotted it or noticed it already in uh, many of the performances this year. It's been a case where his teammate, while in the car, is usually the one going forward a bit. And uh, there have been a few too many times where uh, Joao hasn't gone forward. The, the last race in particular uh, was just hard to ignore the fact that within a very short amount of time, I think they fell from third or fourth down to sixth. And that it, the numbers don't lie, the visuals don't lie, and I think that's why a high-character guy like Joao uh, and the team and their sponsors all agreed that, hey, you know, we're in a pretty amazing place championship-wise. They were second going into mid-Ohio. They came out fifth. It's a very tight, very tight atop the uh, the DPI standings here. It's really more a battle for second 
in third than first at the moment, but uh, with some stronger performances, Graham, to close out the year at Petit Le Mans, at Laguna Seca, at Sebring, there is a chance that this JDC Miller Motorsports Cadillac DPI team could indeed do something really amazing, right? And finish second or third in the championship. So this is where the collision of past, present, things on the home front, and a the smallest team, the, the most <laughs> David among the Goliaths in DPI, uh, they took a pretty big hit at the last round. Things were trending in that direction, and I think they're realizing now's the time to make a change while we could still potentially salvage really strong result in the overall championship. So that's why we're going to get Sebastian Bourdais and the speedy countryman of his, Tristan Vautier, um, and we'll see who's going to be in the car in the, for the third driver. Um, but I think we're going to see the uh, the dual Frenchman line up here to close out the year uh, as called the full-timers, and that's what makes me think. Uh, timing on this call is right, and uh, I really do hope Joao finds more things to keep himself busy. I saw photos of him driving a, a Peugeot 908 at Daytona here, <laughs> just doing some vintage yeah. testing, and I'm like, you know what, man? That's not a bad trade. So <laughs> hopefully that's the uh, portends better things for the future. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll close this one based by saying there's a lot of love your side of the pond for Mr. Barbosa, and there still is here too on this side from his exploits, in particular with Royal Center Racing and a variety of cars that they brought to the fray, whether or not it was GT cars, LMP2, LMP1, uh, some fantastic runs at Le Mans. And if you're listening, shout the very best, the very best. We love you dearly. We really do. Um, we hope to see you back and on good form. Let's move on. Rishai Jispandi and Joshua Ponce both ask about this coming weekend's uh, action at the Charlotte Roval. Um, Rishi asks... Do either of you have any memories of the last time LMS went there in 2000? I don't really, I'll be honest. Um, but uh, Joshua is saying, what are you expecting to see from the GTLMs, the GTDs? Sure, the reason why the DPIs and P2 cars are not running is due to the speeds that can be achieved with little runoff. Was there ever a thought of the three classes for this weekend? Well, no, I don't have memories of the 2000 race. I was at many American Le Mans series races in 2000. Charlotte just was not one of them. I do have phenomenal memories of IMSA going there in the 80s, in particular the 1986 event where Klaus Ludwig uh, in his Ford Probe, little 2.1 liter Zach Speed Turbo 4 making 9 trillion horsepower, uh, led away and just built the most amazing lead I've almost ever seen in IMSA in a non-endurance race. And then because, as they were wont to do back then, uh, all the smoke came out of the motor, and then Klaus was no longer leading. But it was, back in the day, Graham, crazy. So if you think about Charlotte, one-and-a-half-mile banked nascar oval well it had the roval so they did use it uh, as part of the configuration way back then and i seem to recall that there was a tire bale chicane chucked 
in the middle of the back straight between turns two and three, but it was necessary. Not it wasn't just a perfunctory uh, FIA or someone else says you have to insert some sort of uh, chicane or slowdown mechanism if a straight is of a certain minimum, you know, whatever length like we have today. There, that had nothing to do with it. The uh, thousand-ish horsepower being made by these things was too insane to let them come out from the roval in or around turn one, turn two on the banking and fire all the way around to come back to turn four and then pull into the infield again. Um, Yeah, every single engine would have exploded, plus tires would have blown. I mean, just the speeds, Graham, again, I can't even begin to describe how fearsome it was. So that was pretty darn amazing right there. As for the were prototypes ever considered for this, well, that would be no, because this was never meant to be a prototype event. This is making up for one of the lost GT events. So this was a pretty much straightforward, hey, we're losing one of our GT-only events. We have the rest of the calendar mapped out for uh, the, call it, the best amount of uh, runs for each class as we have tried to hold on to in the middle of a pandemic. But in this very specific case, now uh, it was just strictly about coming up with a a good place to go uh, for GTs to fill in a needed spot on their championship calendar. As for what to expect, I just, I think it's going to be amazing. What I can't wait to see here, Graham, or recording, recording, we're going to just keep that. Um, I haven't seen a lot of Jacob Bame questions of late, by the way. He's the one who captures all of my malapropisms. We're going to have the opening practice session here in one hour, recording this on a Friday and we'll get to see what I want to see, Graham, is suspension setups and how soft we are talking about these cars being set up because to make speed and bounding over some of these giant, crazy uh, temporary chicanes and curbings and you name it that they've put in, uh, I think we're going to have to have some pretty sloppy and soft cars, and that always makes for fun. So really, what I wish I was able to do was teleport myself there with all my camera gear and photograph what I expect to be what looks like moon launches from a lot of the cars because it's all the NASCAR guys do when they are there for the road course race. So I can only imagine it's going to be even more by our delightful GTD and GT Le Mans entries. Uh, expanding on that, Josh Richards says, with IMSA racing this weekend at Charlotte Roval with NASCAR, could more double headers with NASCAR be a potential way for IMSA to save costs in the future with the expanded number of road courses on the NASCAR schedule? Could, yes. There's an element here to consider, though, and it's really the most, <laughs> sadly, it's not most valuable to you and I, Graham or to the fans watching at home or listening in, but it is most important for the people putting on the show, and that is being important, looking important, being a headliner as often as possible, and also having ample space to do vendor midways and vendor row and car corrals and all the things that are unique culturally to sports cars. If we're talking NASCAR, 
There are three automotive brands that participate. They do their own big stuff in activation, and that's great. In IMSA and also WEC and Elms, it's, you know, we've got 413 different manufacturers. Thankfully, many of them are spending money to activate, putting up their big bouncy castle, whatever's trying to get folks to come in, look at their stuff, and uh, hopefully uh, endear them to the brand and to sell some cars. So trying to fit all of that in at NASCAR events, I think would be the real issue. Not just real estate-wise, but also the way things tend to work is when IMSA is on the NASCAR card, they are the opening act. They are the non-featured portion of the weekend, and therefore they don't get preferred parking. They don't get preferred anything for where the transporters uh, are, are placed, and they certainly do not get uh, premium vendor midways and whatnot. So for the serious manufacturer engagement that we have, I think something like this is kind of sort of cool and acceptable in a really weird compromised year. Yeah, we'll go to Charlotte and okay, that'll be cool. And we'll, you know, the race is the thing that's going to be fun. It's not going to be a lot of other business done, but in a normal environment, I just can't see how any manufacturer would really be cheering for that because they're going to be second or third class citizens at the event. Let's move forward and move on. I'm going to go to cross.main, it says here, unknown underscore wanderer. Uh, do you think it's time to recombine the DPI's LMP2s for next season since DPI count will drop next year? Kind of give the P2 teams a shot at the overall again. I think you don't. Is that correct? I don't, and yeah, I realize that we have a declining DPI class. Mazda coming down to one car. We'll have two Acuras. We will have three-ish Cadillacs, maybe four, but I would say three-ish. We're going to have a downsized class, full season. Got to use one Montoya here. It is what it is. There's a new formula coming 2023, we expect, with uh, LMDH. I can tell you that the place we're in right now, Graham, and dear listeners that you may or may not know, is, yeah, we hear about all kinds of great stuff, right? Oh, there's a dozen-plus manufacturers involved in the LMDH meetings, and boy, sky is so blue. It's great. We hope to have some committing we expect Acura to be there. We cannot say if Cadillac will. We cannot say if Mazda will. We hope some of the others, we believe Porsche is going to get in. Could be some other stuff. Hyundai, possibly. Lots of possibilities. One thing you have to safeguard is even if the car counts are declining on the run-up to this new formula, Graham, is starting to do a bunch of wonky compromise things that potentially piss off some of the current brands involved in DPI slash LMDH or potentially LMDH if they continue on. And also just showing those who are looking in but still not sure that you're just willing to improvise. And, hey, all right, we're going to chuck Pro-Am LMP2s in and maybe we will or won't speed them up or slow them down or balance them some way. And, hey... Could be some weekends where it's a pro-am blowout like we had when we last did this. Um, 
core auto sport coming to mind and you've got full manufacturers going wait we just got beat by a gibson engine huh (laughs) what what's a gibson no disrespect to gibson obviously but it's not what the manufacturers are investing millions of dollars into annually so it's just a bit of a sensitive time if we were at year two of a five-year runway graham for dpi and the counts were falling already and that we were still a long long time away from the next formula i'd say yeah i would definitely consider recombining the fact that we're not too far away and that we have a lot of manufacturers kicking the proverbial tires in the middle of this pandemic where we know budgets are certainly uh, going to be harder than ever to green light, this is not the call I would make. It's just purely about keeping things looking stable, even if they're a little bit soft on car counts, just keeping the waters absolutely calm till we get more man- till we get manufacturers signed up for uh, LMDH. And who knows, if we have a flurry of them, then maybe in those conversations you say, by the way, we might combine the two just to pump up the car counts, but not until you get a lot of people signed on. I'm going to grab a bag of two or three more before we move on to General and uh, fun to finish. Adam Farrell, uh, under the what the hell happened to uh, series, is a question about what the hell happened to Gustavo Yakiman. Let me check my hard drive space and see how much I have left for this recording. Um, I don't have a full answer, and I apologize. Oddly, this question came in, I think, on Twitter, and uh, Gus, who I haven't heard from in a little bit, not super long, um, responded or liked or something on Twitter. So part of me was like, Oh, I wonder if he saw this question and is like perking up all of a sudden. Um, if the what happened to him question is along the lines of he seemed like he had a lot of potential and then things went off the rails, what happened to him? I think we discussed that plenty of times. Uh, if we're talking about genuinely the guy was around a lot, but we haven't seen him much, whatever happened to, that's the part I can fill in with a little bit of new news. Uh, he, Gus... I don't. I think it might have been text. I don't know if it was email. It might have been text. Whatever it was, uh, just out of nowhere, Graham. Maybe four or five months ago. Whatever the timeline was, got a. Uh, hey man, what's what's up? What's happening? What's going on? And it was just one of those things where, and none of this is negative. It's just you kind of know the the vibe that's going to play out. It was really strange and generic from someone that I haven't spoken to in a couple of years who the last exchange with him was not very pleasant after calling him out for some just abhorrent driving standards, uh, taking out one of the Mazdas on when it was very close to its first DPI win in what, 2018, I think 17 or 18, whatever it was. Yes, indeed. Yes. So, um, anyways, it was all defense and it wasn't me and it was the other guy and whatever. And I, you know, I just wasn't going to bend because I was there. I saw it and it was bullshit and called it that way. Um, he disappeared a bit. Cool. Whatever. He was mad. Sent me a follow-up email saying he or his dad would like to talk to me to defend him. I'm, I'm like, 
no thanks. Again, I would expect your dad to defend you. That's what fathers do. But um, my eyes have seen what they've seen. And so that was that. Cool, whatever, you know, never disliked. I actually always really liked the kid, but whatever, cool. That was that. Text shows up out of nowhere about two years later, Graham. Hey, what's up? Or something like that. And I'm like, oh, hey, Gus, how you doing? I'm good. Okay, so <laughs> it, <laughs> there's not a lot else to it. So what it told me was there was more coming. There was an ask coming. Yep. And so again, all many of you have probably gotten these things from the friend out of nowhere you haven't heard from in a long time. Hey, what's up? And you're like, uh, nothing. You doing okay? Yeah. Hey, still got that truck. I'm moving this weekend. Could I borrow it? You know, you're like, okay. You're not worried about what's up. You got something. You're okay. Got an agenda. So uh, apparently he was starting at this might've been the off season. This might've been late last year. My brain's a little bit fuzzy on the timing, but he was involved and maybe is still involved in some sort of formation of a, I think a junior open wheel series in Florida. Okay. And wanted to know if um, I would be interested in writing about it and covering it. And I said, no, Um, if you need help with a PR person, I can recommend some, uh, if you'd like to pay for some advertorial content, I can refer you to some of my clients. Well, I don't have many clients, but I can refer you to, uh, those that will happily do a business deal with you to help promote your thing. But I'll just kind of kindly say that. I don't know where I land in the experience or reputation place in my profession, but just writing about a series no one's ever heard about where you're just wanting to get free promotion out of it and make no effort to ask if there's any, you know, hey, is there business we could do here that benefits you? Like you doing this for us would benefit us. Like I just politely said uh, no, and I'll point you elsewhere. So those things come through somewhat frequently. I know they do for you as well, Graham and many others. So, yep. um, that's not a, none of that's super critical is just one of those things of like, Oh yeah, you weren't curious how I was doing. You just wanted to probe a little bit and then throw out the ask like, all right, there we go. So that's the answer. That's what's happened too. And I don't know what's happened since I wish him well. And who are we hearing from in our next question, Graham? Uh, let's go for a Joris who says, when an effort like the Acura Team Penske um, program splits up, what happens to the IP? Can HPD pass set up another information onto new customers uh, or new uh, teams, Wayne Taylor and uh, Shank, or are they on their own? I would say knowing that this program is one that has been uh, – just an integrally run effort in both directions. Obviously we have HPD spending a lot of time and money on simulation, uh, driver in the loop stuff, development pieces, so on and so forth. I would say it would surprise me to learn if somehow Penske's setups and all of that information was uh, proprietary IP. I would think that, our friends at HPD would be in the loop and have all that information as it is. Uh, so I can't imagine it being held onto and kept, 
by Penske to the exclusion of HPD. And yeah, so that would therefore be available and passed on to the uh, Michael Shank Racing, Meyer Shank Racing, I apologize, and also uh, our friends at Wayne Taylor Racing. And there's a question in here as well, just going to grab two related. One from Chuck Knob says, uh, so do Penske's Acura DPIs go back to Acura? Will they sell them or keep them for museum pieces? Uh, or does Shank and Wayne Taylor Racing just start from scratch? Well, Chuck, as I wrote in the original story about this on racer.com, those cars, since there are two with Team Penske, one will go to MSR, the other will go to WTR after the season is over. So no, they will not be staying with Team Penske. And those teams, two new teams, will also be receiving a brand new Acura ARX 05 as built by Oreca. So both teams will have two cars, one new, one old. And there you go. And there's one more kind of, actually, geez, um, one more item as well. Tom Firth says, what's happening for Max Angelelli to leave uh, Wayne Taylor Racing's management? Are the partners likely to come in uh, as they go to the Acura era? Also, does the Liberty deal from Meyer Shank Racing involve financial support in sports cars as well as IndyCar? Had learned or heard about Max leaving a little while ago. Uh, so Max was co-owner of WTR, not just management, but uh, actual co-owner of that business. And then also... I mean, he has a lot, as you know, Graham, a lot of relationships representing Cadillac and or Lamborghini and or you name it uh, in various things. Uh, also driver management. And I believe he uh, has been more or less the direct manager for Ryan Briscoe, one of WTR's full-time drivers. So I believe that management deal of Ryan uh, went with him. So... While you and I, Graham, have not named the drivers for Wayne Taylor next year, uh, we have said it would be a big surprise if Ricky Taylor is not announced. Uh, I believe mm-hmm. I believe there's some sort of family link to the team. Haven't is it? fully. I'm, I'm still trying to investigate there. Um, I've heard <laughs> one of the existing full-timers could stay. I don't know which. I would just say that if I'm a person who's looking at evidence presented in front of me if a person who was a longtime co-owner of the team is no longer the co-owner of the team and he is still managing one of the two drivers in the team and is now not part of the team sort of a clue possibly i mean i may be a thousand percent wrong that happens many times every day but i'm just saying huh I mean, my brain might lean in that direction if I'm trying to come up with answers and such. Um, I think we're not too far away from being done here, my friend. Um, I'm going to just put put one in there, which is from Nicholas Patakis, who says, Hey, guys, hope you're well. He'll get right to it. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Is IMSA's LMP2 class dead because of what he describes as, and I'll 
quote this, Lamas LMP3. <laughs> being a huge fan of these LMP2 cars, you, you go, brother. Um, being a huge fan of these LMP2 cars, I think it's a shame to see what the class has become stateside while it's absolutely flourished overseas because the addition of LMP3 simply to improve car counts, quality over quantity in this case. Um, I'm going to just chuck something in here because I'm writing about that right now and there will be a story I'm hoping tomorrow morning which I think you'll find interesting Nicholas because you're wrong it will not be dead and in fact there is pretty good reason for optimism about numbers of LMP2 cars in the MC WeatherTech Sports Car Championship next year I am told, and I'll give you the number before we get into who that might be uh, at some later date, five to seven cars predicted for uh, next year, for full season. Uh, that doesn't include a couple of European teams that are looking very closely at coming to do one or more of the major endurance events too. So some good news coming, uh, I think, for the MSW Tech Sports Car Championships P2 uh, class. Thanks, by the way, to the young man that helped us to put these questions together for some of his efforts. Ryan Kish has been on the case with that and is also going to be bringing forward some news uh, sooner rather later about LMP3 in IMSA because he's been um, basically hitting the phones for the last week or so to pull together some storylines on that one too. There we go. Uh, let's see. I would say, Nicholas, it's not lame-ass. LMP2 isn't dead. I'm not a fan of it, but I understand it. So just as we spoke a couple minutes ago about should we combine DPI and LMP2 just so it looks stronger and healthier, where I don't believe that is the right play right now for the reasons I mentioned, there is a need for IMSA to present overall health. And that is looking big picture stuff of showing that they're still good, still quality. Come invest in us. We're going to have plenty of entertainment on track to offer you. And, boy, the response so far with Core Autosport as well today announcing that uh, John Bennett will be returning along with Colin Brown, uh, teaming up again, doing the uh, WeatherTech Championship LMP3. I know that Andretti Autosport mentioned in the IMSA Prototype Challenge, so the existing standalone series that uh, Andretti Autosport will be there next year with an entry. In general, LMP3 is just a bit easier for folks to afford at the moment. I know that there are absolutely significant and reasonable concerns about the season-long costs at the WeatherTech Championship level. They're real, just they're going to be, hopefully, less than LMP2. This I understand. So, not a big fan, but I also understand that keeping IMSA healthy, keeping the grids in the right, grid counts in the right place, that is what they have to do. The flip side is trying to convert, what, GT4? <laughs> Let's bring up GT4, and then potentially you decimate the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. So, this to me is the one that stands out as... Uh, something that makes sense, even though I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, why don't I flag a couple of other ones that I can very quickly answer, Graham, and then we will close off sure. with some fun in general and get you to bed 
and uh, I get to start watching uh, Free Practice 1 at Charlotte. Uh, Steve Grinstead says, with the announcement of Team Ray Hall, well, we'll call that BMW Team Ray Hall and Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing, moving into a consolidated shop, albeit in a couple of years, what type of team efficiencies will they, they be able to take advantage of? As an outsider, I would think they could cross-train cross on pit stop practices and be able to better staff events on and on off weekends. Um, well, keep this in mind, Steve. They have their IndyCar effort based in Indiana and their sports car program based in Ohio. And so being able to bring and consolidate everything into one area, that's just <laughs> that's the easiest efficiency of all. We have everything in one place, all engineering resources, all minds working together, all crew and all staff. We listen to Mike Hull every now and then when he's on our Week in IndyCar podcast, Graham, referring to items like this. Granted, we know that the 4GT Ganassi program went silent at the end of 2019, but what he would talk about was having these efforts together, having mechanics, really having no specific car. Penske, Team Penske's spoken about this as well. One of the things they like to do is while there might be crew chiefs, on on these specific entries big fans of saying hey uh you're gonna go over there and work on this type of car this week uh or you're gonna go learn about this with someone else you might be working on a front-end mechanic well we're gonna have you work on the back end of the car this week just this mindset of hey differences are good there are absolutely unique ways that a BMW M8 GTE needs to be mechanicked and engineered and loved on and cared for than an IndyCar or a name, whatever else they might have. The ability to have everybody in the same shop. You talk about tips and tricks and efficiencies in how you do things. This is where a lot of this fun stuff comes from. So I mentioned this, Steve and Graham, because sometimes when we have a long-standing racing team that has one primary discipline that they do or out of even if they're in multiple series if they're working out of different shops it's not a surprise when you see that team stuck in the same thing that they do year after year might lose a little bit of crispness might lose a little bit of curiosity there's a bit of drudgery and it's always it's always hard as the years go on to find new things, interesting things, to keep your curiosity up and going, this is the kind of way where you safeguard against that, where you have very different things happening under the same roof, not saying next door to one another, meaning you've got a BMW in one prep stall and an IndyCar next to that and something else next to that, but this is how you elevate an entire team, and I think that part's pretty cool. So... That's the stuff I would say I would think of first and foremost from a purchasing standpoint as well, um, being able to order things in bulk that you might not be able to do with two teams spread across two different states, so on and so on and so on. So you throw in, as you mentioned, pit stop cross-training and all that kind of stuff. Sure, uh, I know they'll be look into doing things like that, but there there's some pretty substantial things that they're going to be able to do better and save money on as a result of having everything under one roof 
Uh, let me see if there's anything else here. Alex Eichmiller asking about, should we read anything into another skipped IMSA race by Cooper McNeil for Ferrari challenge? Uh, asking about, is there any risk of losing that entry? I can't speak to that cause I'm not David McNeil. Uh, but I can tell you that they've been frustrated enough with how well things have not gone in GTD this year that, when they signaled that Cooper was going to be doing the Laguna Ferrari challenge instead of mid Ohio GTD. Uh, I had it in the back of my head that this might happen again because there's nothing for Cooper to pursue um, in terms of a championship. Now, granted, we know that he loves endurance racing, Graham. So we would expect to see him back for those coming up on the calendar. So um, Steve, uh, Scott Christie, all right, two more just going to rattle through here. Um, if Nissan decided to return an LMDH, are the LMP2 chassis manufacturers only approved to make mid or rear engine, mid, rear or mid mounted engines, uh, or can they make them front mounted too? Thanks for the free fun. I yeah. think someone's trying to get the GTR LM Nismo, GTR L Nismo MR back. Uh, well, Scott, I mean. I I believe, I don't know if it would be allowed, but you could turn things around in the gearbox to make the rear of the car go forward. So you would probably have to have a significant uh, rear view mirror system or video system to drive it backwards. But you could, while the rules don't allow LMP2 manufacturers to do front-mounted uh, engine installations you could in theory play with the gearbox possibly um to spin things around and have the car drive in the opposite direction so yeah uh the 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 ass end would indeed be going first into the corner um i just yeah uh drivers having to learn it have true rear steer if you want to put it that way although it'd be front steer just the car would be going backwards so i'm telling you what this is something I absolutely want to see. Please make this happen. How do we make this? So, I, I'm just going to give the condensed answer: no, or no. I mean, that was the other other option I was leaning towards. Uh, but it is technically possible. I don't know if it's regulationally possible. Um, Another great word. Yes, there we go. Uh, Scott Bell will we'll close IMSA on this. Love the podcast. Love the cats. Don't forget the dog, too. Uh, with IMSA bringing in LMP3 as a barrier for them uh, to pad the GT grid and then graduate uh, Porsche, Lambo, Ferrari Challenge, and other uh, one-make championships uh, financially, what, what's the deal? Uh, is it skill, brand logistics? All these different sub-series have confused me as to why they even exist. Uh, does it really come down to segregating which uh, rich old guys just want to have particular toys to play with. And are they serious racers? Um, you know, brother, in theory, some of these are training categories. I don't know if I could give you a straight look and say, oh, yeah, they're all about training next generation. Some of them are just full styling and profiling classes. Uh, I know the Cooper McNeil and a couple of others have used or do use Ferrari challenge stuff to learn and advance themselves. But by and large, it's those series I think exist for pro racers, Graham and race engineers to earn all the money 
that they no longer do in pro racing. Because if you want, here's a pro tip. If you want to get a bunch of driver, sports car name driver autographs without going to an IMSA event, go to a Ferrari Challenge event. Because pretty much every GTD pro driver and even some in GTLM, you'll find some prototype drive, you know, DPI drivers. They're all making wads of cash, thousand plus dollars per day, fifteen hundred, two grand a day, plus expenses being driver coaches for the uh, hedge fund managers and Wall Street types and barons of captains of industry racing their Ferrari, whatever the hells they are. So Lamborghini, we do see a little bit more of a talent transfer upward. Porsche uh, series, we certainly see that as well. Um, I don't know, man, when it comes to LMP3. Uh, it really does seem like a pretty cool place where we see a lot of youth there, right? A lot of junior open wheel youth getting in to be the pro driver. So I don't know. Love you too, Scott. Love this podcast too. Do love the cats. Do love the dogs. My head does blow up a little bit. Uh, hey, let's not forget the, uh, what, Mazda MX-5 Global MX-5 Cup 5 Global Mazda thing as well. And there we got Michelin Pilot Challenge. And then we haven't spoken about Blank Pain, Stairface, whatever as well, Challenge GT America's SRO. So we're about to. <sighs> Where do we go next, Graham Goodwin? And thanks for the question, Scott. We go to Herr General and eight. Well, a flurry of questions. Nicholas Kohutz, uh, right turn lover. Hi, fella. Uh, Luke Filipponi and Jeff Barrack amongst them. I don't think they're the only ones on the general subject of the Indianapolis eight hours. Where do we start? Uh, pit stop rules. And I so hope you gets... talk because I didn't watch a minute of it because I didn't give uh, a crap. And I say that uh, with <laughs> all love and respect. It's the best series in the history of the world. I just had other things to do. I did watch a, a goodly proportion of this, uh, but um, it's fair to say pretty chaotic in the first couple of hours. Unluckily for race organizers, just as the race started, the rain yeah. came tumbling, and that did not drain it terribly well on that there Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, number of questioners here talking about the rather restrictive pit stop rules. And I have to say, I tend to agree with you. I thought it basically messed it up at a point where uh, we had uh, teams waiting for several seconds under stopwatch, waiting for the cars to be released, laps were lost, etc., etc. Jeff Barrack saying, you know, what did he just watch? What did he just watch? Uh, (laughs) Did it work? It could work. It absolutely needed needed more cars. It absolutely needed more cars at the sharp end. There was some good driving, good racing, uh, but ultimately um, the single Bentley, uh, having been pedaled extremely well in particular, um, Jordan Pepper, I thought was fantastic at the wheel of that car, um, stumbled over traffic and that eventually put the car uh, effectively out of the race. Um, there's a good stuff too from the leading Acura uh, NSX until problems hit that one too and ultimately it was a bit of a runaway one two for the two Walkenhurst uh, BMWs um, it lacked something 
it's a race that happened and I think in many ways we possibly uh, expected at some point that it might not have done I wish them well with finding a grid for next year after what's been a hell of a year um, but I think they need to learn some lessons about how to make a um, mixed class endurance race flow because this one simply didn't um, you know there's no getting away from the fact that weather was extreme at the start of the race uh, we had safety cars we had all sorts of uh, interruptions we had a couple of fairly significant accidents that came down to uh, surface water but the reality was it was not certainly not for the first two or three hours a very entertaining watch i think that's all i want to say about it to be honest with you wish them well hope they try it again hope it works for them but they do need to learn some of the lessons that race taught them can i just throw in an observation that it seems like whenever there is a significant sro based endurance event oh there's a flurry of questions following it most of them along the theme of rules what the hell are those those don't work or need to be reworked or why did this happen this is the decision to do this is in isolation of seemingly everything else that we know takes place and makes sense in sports car racing. I know it's a, it's a generalism, but it just seems like name the long event that has SRO attached to it. I know sometimes it could be Creventic attached to it, and there you know there's aud- there are oddities out there, but man, I'm just struggling to recall Graham the long endurance event held by the SRO where the following week's questions or submissions went along the lines of, oh, it was cool. Yeah, that made total sense. Yeah, I, I understood everything that happened, and it was great. <laughs> like, <laughs> that would be a bit of a yep. welcome change. Uh, I think I think the answer is uh, I entirely agree. I think it, it needs to be simpler. You need to make it more accessible. We've got a sport now where you can watch it basically free worldwide. If you're going to go to that trouble, make it just that little bit more entertaining. Make it that bit more accessible in reality in terms of the, the rule set. Don't expect people to read a textbook to understand your event. I understand why what the what the road has been to some of those those uh, rule sets, but the reality is what it's left you with feels messy. I mean, we've got another few questions coming on to talk about the spa. Twenty five hours now, twenty four hours. Same thing applies, which is we've just developed this this position where the rules have become the story, and that shouldn't be the case. The story should be the racing, not the rules. And if you've got to that that point. Um, then we're doing something wrong. We started this this show talking about driver rankings and LMP2. Wrong. You know, it should be about how easy it is to to race these cars and race them awesomely well. We shouldn't be spending our time trying to explain to people why we've changed a rule set for the 95 billionth time. And I. <laughs> I don't want to knock SRO. I think they've done some fantastic stuff in terms of making their racing accessible worldwide. You know, their streaming product is pretty much second to none, I would suggest. 
but the they do seem to have this addiction to messing about with rules. And by the way, there's more stories to come on this um, from SRO Championships. Sitting on another story to do with um, you know a significant rule change for a significant championship which they're responsible for, which has uh, led to a number of utterly outraged calls from their customer teams to me over the last couple of days. So. It's not going away, and I don't really quite understand what this obsession is with just tinkering. Find a formula. If it produces good racing, let them race. If people are clever enough to find a way through that rule, then they're going to find a way through that rule, and others have got the option to follow or not. If it's not directly affecting the affordability of racing, if it's not driving people from that, that grid, let's let successful teams be successful just for a little while. Wouldn't that be nice? Ricky uh, Zagata throws in something here. Marshall, I'm highly confused in everything about World Challenge America, presented by Pirelli on Speed Vision. Uh, I know it's owned by the SRO Group, but uh, who does the event officiating, and can you break down the class structure? And I just have to say, Ricky, no. <laughs> no. Um, and I don't mean that no to you so much. Just uh, yeah. There was a press release that came out, I think, a week ago today, maybe it was Saturday, whatever it was, during the eight-hour event about uh, the GT America schedule and plans and whatnot for next year. I read the release. It was competently written but also seemed to lack some things that maybe they didn't want to delve into so much. And so there was, while it was written with competence, it was also written seemingly to scrub some key information from it uh, that they really didn't want to draw too fine of a uh, target on. So I sent good pal Greg Gill, uh, CEO of uh, the American uh, uh, series here, a note and said, hey, I'm truly sorry. Could you explain some things to me? Cause I read the release and I have more questions than answers. And he said, and I explained some of the things I was a little bit fuzzy on Graham. And he responded with an amazing text. And after reading it, I said, thank you for sending that. I'm even more confused before I asked the question. <laughs> and so he said he would actually try and take the time to write a fully composed email to explain such things. I just mentioned this and I'm not, that's by no means speaking ill of a, a beautiful old friend in Greg Gill uh, or the company, the series that he looks after Ricky, but I do this for a living. If I haven't done it as a living, as a reporter and that kind of guy, I've worked in it. I've worked in World Challenge multiple times, different eras of World Challenge as well. Been really up close to a bunch of stuff, blah, blah, blah. I really get lost, and I supposedly know this stuff better than the average person. So I just mention this because I feel for you and some others who really want to get stuck in and get every aspect to it. But, yeah, um you might have picked up over the years that I don't think super highly of the SRO organization. I can just tell you for what we had here as world challenge, it has become a very different entity since they took command of it. And uh, yeah, confusion is a regular friend. Uh, let's see, Jerry Suddeth. I have a handful of SCCA dash badges from various regional <laughs> events in the 1960s and seventies. 
and have a question as to their purpose. It says, were they commemorative items or proof of a vehicle was qualified to enter the race, etc.? Thank you. Well, I love that you mentioned this, Jerry, because as I look to the right side of my desk, I, too, have a number of SCCA badges. And some of them were or are mine, meaning they were given to me when I entered an SCCA race as a driver back in the late 80s and early 90s in a Formula Ford. Uh, the majority, though, were my father's from races he entered in the 60s and 70s as a driver. And as for their purpose, yeah, I, I think that's exactly what they're meant to be, commemorative items. Uh, back when dash plaques, these little rectangular pieces, Graham, not even an inch high or a centimeter high and maybe, I don't know, two, three inches wide, couple uh, centimeters uh, wide. But these smallish items were just something that, although it doesn't really work in a formula car because there's not a whole lot of space, but especially in sedans, something where you would see folks that use them a bit like folks who collect. Yeah. Well, I was there, but you know, for folks who say I every time I fly to a new place, I buy a shot glass at, you know, whatever city I'm in. And that's my collecting thing. It's a bit like that for uh, being a race car driver and being involved in those series like you. I don't really know what the hell to do with them, but I got them. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of fun. Anything else we want to cover off here, Graham, in Hegenerau? I see the last question from Nick Dovniak does have a hashtag LMD Husky, so that piqued my we'll, curiosity. We'll, we'll Is that for you? That one. Let's have a, let's have a quick, yeah, I'll have a quick look at that one. Let's have a look. One here from James Counter. It's one to me. So I'll answer it because that's polite. How hard is it to commentate on something like the Nürburgring 24 hours where you probably don't have any prior knowledge of the majority of entrants, don't have full camera coverage of a language barrier with most of the competitors in comparison to Le Mans? How do your approaches differ? First things first, you never, ever, ever come into, uh, as long as you're trying to be professional about it, come into a race with no prior knowledge. In the case of the Nürburgring 24 hours, uh, in the years, and it was something about a decade or so that I commentated on that race, um, one of my roles was to hold off the um, entry list in whatever form we could get it, uh, was to examine that, was to pull story strands out of it. And one of my early tasks uh, when we were setting up the studio was to put the entire entry list on the wall, and that is, some, um, I think from memory, something like 20 pages of it, um, and cross-reference where we thought the fan favourites were, where the top drivers were, where there were other stories, if there was a kind of, you know, uh, someone like Jitter Kleinschmidt, who was a ex-World you know, world Rally driver, often out there in a car, uh, where, we, where was the Manta, what, you know, the Foxtail Manta. It's basically trying to give things that we can go to as, a, as an easy story strand and that would be amended throughout. So highlighters were offered up, pens were offered up. Uh, there'd be separate lists provided to the other commentators to say, these are the cars we're going to keep an eye on. And they would then keep the um, the broadcast going in a kind of formulaic fashion by making sure that you were following up with not just those fan favorites, but also the major class uh, leaders. Keep it interesting. Make it easier to follow. It's, a, it's, a, it's I guess, MP... It's an expansion of that point about not letting the rules 
going to be in charge. The race should be in charge. And it's about trying to make what is a very complicated event, 24 hours with times 20 plus classes, as accessible as possible to, in our case, primarily a listening audience at that stage, now a listening and viewing audience. And the numbers would seem to indicate that that works. It's a, it's a mystery to me why people make it more difficult. Difficulty is fun, plus sports cars. Uh, it's all about, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all about confusion and complications. So uh, let's see. I'll throw this at you to close. Hegenerale. Nick Dovniak, if organizations want to make qualifying a better show, why not allow a, quote, party mode? Remove the extra ballast and rev limits. Allow more boost or small arrow tweaks and give everyone dedicated tires. Since qualifying doesn't matter uh, nearly as much in a four-plus-hour race, why not at least make it a show? He says, hashtag me personally. Would love to see some of that uh, of the DPIs and what they can do. Um, Definitely uh, without varying around a large dog worth of uh, lead in the back or lead in the back. He says, hashtag LMDH Husky. So sounds like Nick wants to yank ballast and such out of prototypes gts nick wants mayhem do we support him in this endeavor yes and no cats and dogs Um, living together yes and no yeah um i think the answer here is i see value in a one-off event without the rule set without the balance of performance without that you know if you could offer some kind of incentive or purse for those cars that have suffered most of their competitive lives, highly balanced, highly restricted, for those manufacturers, those teams to be offered an incentive to run them without those restrictions as a one-off, maybe as a sprint race, maybe just a sprint, maybe it's a kind of time attack thing. I'd be fully supportive of that. I think that's something I'd watch. Um, But whether or not that's financially sustainable and achievable is a different matter. Uh, Do I think it'd be entertaining? I do. Do I think we could see ultimately what these things are capable of in terms of pure raw pace? Yeah, and I'd be up for that. How many takers would you get to spend the money that's required to do that? I'm not quite sure. Okay. We have one category left. I have roughly 10 to 11 minutes before I need to start watching IMSA practice to file a report at the end of it. So, it means we're going to have to be miserly in our decision here and what to use. We're going to stick on a, uh, a pet-like theme. This does come in from at dog underscore DSC. Why does dad leave for several days every two weeks? And why does my snack count tumble when he isn't here? I have a feeling Bad we're going dog. to be getting a lot of submissions from uh, Bad DSC dog. Bad dog. Bad dog. Good dog. Um, well, well, Oscar, uh, the answer is I'm out there earning money for those snacks. Uh, the reason your snack count tumbles uh, when I'm not there is because mum, the lovely Trudy, is far less gullible to, to having a doggy's head tipped to one side with a look at the top, at the top of his eyes than I am. Um, happily, uh, Husky's main snacks of choice are fairly healthy. Would you believe carrots and bananas? 
it's true. Husky like carrots and bananas. Um, so why do I leave for several days every two weeks? It's to feed you, you bucket. Um, <laughs> and uh, why does your snack count tumble when I'm not there? Well, probably because we can't afford any more uh, because you eat so many of them, you bucket. Um, and Daddy loves you very much. Well, we're going to continue here. I mean, this is hard-hitting stuff. I, I apologize for saving it to the end of the show. We should, probably should have let off with this uh, hashtag breaking exclusive scoop type content. Uh, we're going to go to our pal John Wojnar, also known as John Ranjow. Graham, with LMDH, officially being announced as standing for Lamont Daytona Husky as Oscar fielded any driving offers from teams, perhaps from Ferrari or Alpine Pajo? <laughs> You've created this problem. Uh, I'm sorry, we've got to go along with Oscar created this problem by uh, creating his own uh, Twitter account. This is going to be an every week yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, what a whack. What a whack. Uh, I can tell you that last time I saw Oscar, he was indeed in long tail format. Oh. oh, Jesus. Here we go. Here we go. There we go. That's as much as I can really say on that one. Okay. Bless him. Oh, he, yeah, there's an NDA sign. I forgot yours is you're, like Wayne, uh, Max Angelelli to Ryan Briscoe. Graham Goodwin is to Oliver the Husky. And, yes, many officer, office, officers Oscar, and offers Oscar, being fielded Oscar, as well. Oscar. Yes. Oscar the Husky. Here you Oscar, go, Graham. Oscar. Do you have any leads for Oscars <laughs> driving tips? No? No? Sorry. Couldn't help. Couldn't resist. Now we'll see what we can harness as we come up to the, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what Bless is him. wrong with us? Um, uh, James Counter says, should NASCAR send some cars to IMSA this weekend so they can race on the oval at the same time the cars are in and out of the infield for the roval? Yes, James, yeah. they should. In shame on NASCAR if they do not hold either a race or a practice session while IMSA's race on the Roval is going on. Um, yes. Uh, where else do we go? Other than further down look. the toilet. Absolutely. Um, let's look at it here. This is Carl H.B. Donnelly. Please explain as many words why well, the greatest thing about the American Le Mans series was the panel's LMP1 Roadster S. Yes, he did attend the American flag clad mighty roses victory on the amazingly wonderful parking lot course in Washington, DC. I remember that wow. race very, very well. Well, look, look the, yeah, the, the panels was amazing uh, sound more than anything else. An absolutely amazing piece of kit. And wasn't that a wonderful time when you could have something that was as clinically beautifully engineered as an Audi R8 um, being basically repeatedly clouted around the fenders literally as well as metaphorically by something like the panos which to my mind beautifully engineered beautifully engineered uh, piece of kit completely different idea about the way in which you set up a race car and then basically nail a small atomic bomb underneath the hood and send it go racing but a couple as well-balanced individuals as David Brabham and Jan Magnussen to drive. That's always going to go well. I also love the callback to the Washington uh, LMS street race, Kyle, 
only thing I can add to this that just struck me as as fun and or funny might have been five, six, seven years ago where I believe it was the awesome Kyle Chura. I'd asked him for something, some sort of photo or might have been a video thing, whatever it was, it was a sizable file or files that really were not meant for uh, emailing. And frankly, at that point in time, however many years ago, the uh, file transfer services that some of us use frequently weren't really, they hadn't taken off yet. So it was pretty common to ask a PR rep for help with something like that, and they'd hand off a USB stick. I just seem to recall getting this USB stick handed to me with a Washington, whatever, 2002 Washington, D.C. LMS branded lanyard attached to the USB stick. And I'm like, you're the best guy in the world there, Kyle Chura. And I'm going to try to remember to give this back to you, wink, wink, but I might forget. And uh, <laughs> I think I forgot, wink, wink. And really? so I think out of nowhere, out of him doing a kind thing to me, but kind of telling him I was going to steal this really cool lanyard from the, uh, the Washington, Washington ALMS race, I think I did hold on to it. So, um, yeah, if I find that, uh, Mr. Chura, I'll be sure to give that back to you, wink, wink. Um, Graham Goodwin, do we do any more, or have we thoroughly sullied our reputations and we should stop? I think we probably should because David Lord uh, is sharing a twin room with me here. Has been trying to sleep for some hour and a what? half now, and it's now half past one in the morning here in uh, uh, what's been a very sunny Monza and with a very very noisy race team in the uh, in the room next door. And I'm about to go and hammer on their door and tell them to shut the flip up. I think because uh, we're up and about and back on track tomorrow morning at about half past eight with the European Le Mans Series, Michelin Le Mans Cup, and the Ligier European Series at Monza. So I am going to say our goodbyes. I'm going to say thank you very much indeed, as always, to all of our listeners who sent in these questions. I'll remind you again, please do listen to that uh, Peugeot 908 podcast with another one to come from MP. I'm going to say thank you to Ryan Kish for putting the questions together so quickly for us. And of course, what I'm going to do is to say thank you to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, to Bill Helmets USA, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. Thank you again to Marshall Pruitt for putting all this together, joining me for another very enjoyable couple of hours of podcasting. You're about to go off and uh, watch what's going on at the Charlotte Roval. I'm about to go off and hit the sack, and we will be with you again next week for the Week in Sportscast. <laughs>